Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Garthy have begun a murder investigation in County Offaly after a woman was attacked and killed in Tullamore. Prince Andrew's bid to dismiss a sex abuse case is rejected. CNN correspondent Max Foster will join us live. And Sky's Enda Brady for the latest on British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as he says sorry for a lockdown drinks party. Even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way. To them and to this house, I offer my heartfelt apologies. With changes to close contact rules from Friday, Professor Christine Losher will be live in studio and we'll be finding out how practical it is to lead a sustainable life in 2022. And later, architect Roisin Murphy on how to retrofit Ireland. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag Tonight, VMTV. First tonight, Garthi have begun a murder investigation after a woman was attacked and killed along the Canal Bank in Tullamore in County Offaly. Well, our crime correspondent, Sarah O'Connor, joins me now with the very latest on this. And Sarah, uh, can you tell us what we know about this Garda investigation tonight? Yes, Claire. Well, this is particularly shocking. It happened at four o'clock this afternoon uh, into the evening. So daylight would just have been fading at that point when this young woman in her early 20s, who was well known in the uh, Tullamore area from a very well-respected family, a teacher in the area, she was out uh, jogging along the canal bank at Capon Kerr in Tullamore, a popular spot for walkers and joggers, when she was attacked and fatally assaulted. Now, it's understood that she was found by two women who were also using that area to exercise that they raised the alarm and Gardaí suspect that there would have been a lot of witnesses around because of the time in the afternoon because it was such a, a popular area for, for walkers and joggers and a short time later a man in his 40s who lives in Tullamore uh, and has lived there for some time. He was arrested and brought to Tullamore Garda Station for questioning. He's been detained under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act, uh, and so he can be questioned for up to 24 hours before uh, a decision will be made on whether to charge or release him. But the woman's body remains at the scene this evening. The Office of the State Pathologist and the Garda Technical Bureau has been notified, or have been notified, and uh, it's understood that this was a completely random attack that the woman and the man were not known to each other. And tonight, Sarah Gardy are appealing for witnesses who may actually have been in the area at the time of the murder of this fatal attack to get in touch to contact them. 
Absolutely. As I said, it was a very popular area, uh, the Canal Bank in Capincurran in, in Waterford for people who were walking or uh, jogging, just taking exercise. It was only four o'clock in the afternoon. So there would have been a lot of people around this. So they suspect that there were witnesses to this attack and they're asking anyone with any information that they uh, deem relevant to come forward to contact them at Tullamore Guard, the station on 57 or on the Garda confidential line, which is 1-800-666-111. An incident room has been set up at Tullamore uh, Garda station and a family liaison officer has been appointed and is liaising with the family of this young woman who they have lost in such horrific circumstances today. Okay, Sarah, thank you for joining us and bringing us up to date on that story tonight. Now, another story uh, that's been making the headlines, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was forced to apologise today after he admitted attending a drinks party during lockdown in Downing Street in the back garden. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to Sky News correspondent Enda Brady about it. Oh, Claire, I think it's been another very, very difficult day for Boris Johnson and not a good one. So he has apologised. I think the whole aesthetics of all of this, just how it looks, it's just not a good look. Having put the UK population into quite a strict lockdown, you know, back in May 2020, people were not allowed to mix with anyone. There was no socialising. You had to have a reason to be leaving your house Everything was closed, everything was shut. There was absolutely no prospect of any socialising or partying. And now we learn that this event happened in the back garden at Downing Street and that it was bring your own booze. That's what the email actually said. I think he's in a very, very tight spot now, all of his own making, mm. because ultimately, you know, who would have had sign off on this? It was one of his top aides who sent the email and the prime minister attended. So Labour are making hay with this. And I think his real problems now will come from within his own party, that someone will make a move against him soon. That's the big question, isn't it? Has he done enough to get through this? Because we are hearing about Conservative Party disquiet. Um, the Scottish Conservative leader certainly believing enough is enough now. Are there others going that way? Is there growing momentum now against the British Prime Minister? Look, I think the one person who was quite conspicuous by his absence today was Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. He was not in the House of Commons today. He was not in Parliament. He was not in Westminster. He was down in a town called Ilfracombe in North Devon at the launch of 200 new jobs and a £60 million investment by a pharmaceutical company down there into the local economy. So Rishi Sunak painted the picture of cracking on, levelling up, building back better, you know, Basically, he wants to be the next prime minister. Uh, he is the bookies' favourites. And ultimately, if you look at the odds that the bookies are offering tonight, is nine to four on him being uh, the next prime minister and nine to four on, on Boris Johnson being gone by the end of the year. So he's famously optimistic. I interviewed him last week and new haircut, new shirts, new tie, new suit, you know, looking the part. But all problems have come back to bite Boris Johnson today quite badly. OK, so what happens now? We have this uh, Sue Gray investigation. Does a lot hinge on this or in the interim? Does the public reaction uh, to Boris Johnson's explanation today matter an awful lot in the coming days? Look, I think it's a mix of both. Sue Gray is a Whitehall Mandarin, a career civil servant. She will no doubt do a thorough investigation. But I think 
he's got several problems now. You've got uh, disharmony inside the Conservative Party, people who are realising that perhaps a guy who won an 80-seat majority for them not that long ago has suddenly become a major electoral risk. Also, you know, all the guidance and telling people about restrictions and what you can and can't do, how much are the public going to play along with any future guidance or restrictions or even lockdowns, it will all come back to parties in Downing Street. I think it has really damaged the Prime Minister's reputation, but I think it's death by a thousand cuts now. And ultimately, if you listen to his critics, they're telling us that you're into perhaps the last six months of the Boris Johnson premiership. OK, we'll have to see. Sky News correspondent Enda Brady, thank you for joining us tonight with that analysis. Thanks, Claire. Well, the Cabinet has approved changes to the isolation periods for COVID-19, which will take effect from midnight tomorrow. Well, the decision brings an end to the five-day isolation period for, uh, or restriction period for fully vaccinated close contacts who do not have any COVID symptoms. Well, joining me now is Professor of Immunology at DCU, Christine Losher, and via Skype by founder of HR buddy, uh, Damien McCarthy. And I want to come to you, Christine, um, first. There's a lot of detail really around this to get through and for people to get their heads around as well, because another big rule change um, on the horizon. Um, and the impact of these changes. So first off, fully boosted, as I said, asymptomatic, uh, close contacts no longer have to restrict their movements. It's not dissimilar to what was in place for those who were vaccinated before Christmas and before the Omicron wave. So if you had a case in your household, but you were vaccinated, say a parent, even though a child had COVID, you could, you could go about your daily business. It's not dissimilar to that. Not that. dissimilar to the rule that we had at some stage last year when we were dealing with the different variant. And I suppose the difference at the moment is that Omicron is a much more highly transmissible variant and more likely to transmit to a close contact than the previous variant. So it's a little bit different, and that's why implication of a similar rule in a different scenario may come with an added risk. Right, OK. In the science behind it, um, we've, we've been said, and this seems to be, you know, what the Taoiseach is saying, what the government is saying on this. This is, you know, credit to the booster, to the uptake of the booster, that we are in a position to be able to do this, well, because we need to do it, but um, that, that that will have an impact and that will help mitigate against spread of Omicron in this case that has allowed them, in essence, to do this. Would you agree with that, that the booster will mitigate, it, it will cut down, certainly, your chances of getting Omicron in the first place? Yeah, so, I mean, there's huge credit to the booster programme in terms of how we've managed COVID in general. Um, I think with Omicron, you know, our science will say that getting a booster, because it's so different, Omicron, to the previous variants, and we were vaccinating against previous variants, getting the booster might bring your immunity back up to maybe 70 to 75%. It's not the 95% or 90% we would have had with Pfizer at some stage, so against um, Delta or Alpha. So there is that gap of this percentage of risk, I suppose, for picking up Omicron, even if you are boosted. And unfortunately, given the transmissibility of this virus, it takes advantage of that gap the whole time. So breakthrough infections are much more a feature of Omicron than they were with any previous variant. So while we can credit the booster programme for management of, of cases, in particular severity of disease, 
I don't think that we're in a scenario where we're so fully protected with the booster against something as highly transmissible as Omicron that we can maybe take our foot off the pedal quite yet. Yeah, and we heard the chief medical officer tonight cautioning that people don't take this as, you know, free movement for all and that it's, it's all gone away, that these mitigation me measures that have been put in place, so the seven days of antigen tests you must take and wearing um, higher grade masks will help mitigate the issue as well. Look, what sort of impact will they have and will they help in part um, to protect people, especially in a workplace scenario, which we are likely to see because if you are a close contact, you can now go back to work. You no longer need to stay at home. Yeah, so I think they're positioned as being... Um, a kind of a swap out for the you know previous restricted movements it, they're being replaced now with these set of guidance mm. and i think you just touched on the the workplace thing you know the ecdc kind of gave these new kind of guidance around having leeway because of staff shortages and it was very much focused on the workplace but if you look at the um, advice that came out tonight part of the advice for people not restricting their movements includes work from home if possible, which is completely contrary to we're using this to be able to get people back to work. So I think if we're going with the ECDC advice, which is around changing the rules to be able to deliver essential services, my understanding would have been that the appropriate use of them guidance, of that guidance, is to be able to provide a derogation that's broadly used for essential services and that restricted movements would be lifted for attending a workplace as opposed to being able to, you know, not have to restrict your movements at all. But that specific advice that was given in the list mm. of things to do, apart from wearing masks and antigen testing was work from home if possible. Now, if you're a close contact and you can work from home, you can work from home even if you have restricted movement. So it's very contrary to what the, I suppose, the focus and the target of the ECDC was around essential services and staff shortages. And I don't think the advice change actually addresses that at all. Yeah, and I suppose individual uh, employers and, and companies will maybe use the rules as they wish to use them um, for their own uh, workforces. And I want to bring in that angle and what it'll mean for workplaces. And um, we're joined now by um, HR buddy, um, founder Damien McCarthy and uh, Damien on that matter um, workplaces now in essence are going to become much more high risk in terms of uh, catching Covid so there's a challenge there isn't there for employers yes absolutely Claire um, um, I suppose largely uh, today's announcement um, is welcomed by businesses and by employers um, who would have faced staffing challenges over the last few weeks. Um, however, there is a flip side uh, to this, and I suppose there is a greater risk now in workplaces and in managing people in workplaces with regard to health and safety. Um, I, I suppose close contacts will come back in uh, to uh, the workplace under the relaxed guidelines. Um, but. Um, while staff might be welcome in many quarters, there is a section of employees who will be worried by the announcement today and will have concerns with regards to health and safety. Yeah. And there's going to be challenges there for employers, most definitely. So in that instance, um, say I'm at home, um, there, there's a COVID case in my household, um, I'm not really that comfortable going into work or else I'm going into work and I know there are people um, who are close contacts and I simply don't want to be working around them. Do I have any rights? Um, well, I think there's still a great deal of personal responsibility um, as part of all this. 
um, clear. And I suppose there was a move made um, by Minister Humphreys uh, last week whereby uh, close contacts uh, could find it easier uh, to get into and uh, be entitled to the enhanced illness benefit uh, where they had proof of a close contact message from the HSE or where they had ordered um, HSE antigen testing uh, online. Um, so that was a very good and positive move moved by the government, I think. And I think yeah. people's opinions on this and on health and safety in the workplace um, still remains in large part with, re with regard to the personal uh, choices of people and their workers. And I think employers have to be compassionate and empathetic towards that. Of course, the whole vaccine status comes into play as well there and um, how much your employer has a right to know because that dictates whether or not you have to restrict your movements. Uh, yeah, well, um, I suppose this is the big thing and to a certain degree, Claire, um, it's a bit of a mess um, because of that. A protection law, the employer um, cannot ask the employee about their uh, vaccination status. Um, it's quite funny, actually, because um, as a society, we seem to be very open about our vaccination status, yet an employer cannot discuss it uh, because of that, a protection laws. So that's, um, I suppose, tying the hands of employers. Yeah. And it's very interesting that the new guidelines um, are referring in particular now to the booster vaccine, whether um, under the guidelines, whether uh, close contact is booster vaccinated or not. But of course, uh, the employer uh, doesn't have that Has information. There's no way of finding that out. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And really, it's quite a ridiculous situation, to be honest. Christine, um, just um, on that and, and what we're expecting, because this was brought about, of course, because there's been so many absences from the workplace um, and we've seen, um, you know, the, the fallout from that in terms of goods and services and regular business and uh, the number of people who are off work at the moment. Uh, but would we expect there to be a problem that close contacts was the issue and now we could see a big case rise being the new problem? Yeah, I mean, we're still getting transmission of Omicron out in the community when people don't know they're being exposed to Omicron. So we're still getting cases, every, like really high numbers every single day. So we're getting Omicron from people who don't know that they're close contacts, who don't know that they have um, Omicron. And now we're going to, I suppose, allow people who are close contacts, who know that they're in contact or have been in contact with a positive case. The numbers that were released in the week ending the 19th of December, so when Omicron was only about 50%, it wasn't dominant yet, one in five close contacts translated into a case. So that's 20% 20, 20 of, of people who might now go back and not restrict their movements. If Omicron now, as we know, is dominant, that figure is far higher. And actually, a couple of GPs came out today and said their experience, particularly in household contacts with Omicron, is that it could be as high as 60%. Other data that we've just seen that came out today where the results of two clinical trials in South Africa have shown that instead of asymptomatic people being maybe about 5 to 10%, it's 31% with Omicron. So you may find that, and that's the reason why we might have huge case numbers, because people are asymptomatic. And now you're putting out a load of close contacts which we know some of will translate into cases and we know that you can be infectious for two days before you are symptomatic and positive on the antigen test and that is the 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 timeline or that's the the gap or that time of risk that you're exposing other people potentially to so we're going to put a lot more virus into the community essentially yeah, OK. Um, and briefly on that, because we're hearing of, of 60 to 80,000 cases potentially being out there every day. But, you know, we are we are peaking on that. Um, but do you expect cases to go up again in light of this new guidance? 
It's, it's hard to say because we don't really know where our case numbers are. So even if our case numbers do increase as a, as a consequence of this, we're actually not going to be able to see it or measure it because we're completely maxed out. So I think that, you know, we're in a situation where we still want to keep viral transmission in the community low. This is a key tool in a pandemic breaking chains of transmission. And we have relaxed it, I think, far too early in this highly transmissible Omicron surge to be able to say that it's really that safe and effective. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Christine Losher, thank you as always. And my thanks to Professor Losher and to Damien McCarthy for joining me on that. Now, in other news today, a US judge has denied Prince Andrew's plea to dismiss a sexual assault lawsuit brought against the British royal, paving the way for the case to proceed, uh, a court filing has shown. His lawyer said the case should be thrown out, citing a 2009 deal that uh, was signed with convicted sex offender uh, Jeffrey Epstein. But a New York judge ruled that the claim could be heard. Well, CNN's London correspondent Max Foster joins me now. Uh, Max, bring us the latest on this. Is this a surprise that it has come to this, that Prince Andrew will now face this civil case in the US over those allegations? Yeah, Claire, effectively, the judge is saying Prince Andrew does have a case to answer after you know, repeated efforts by his team to get the case closed, uh, thrown out effectively. So the latest effort to argue that Dufresne had signed a deal with Epstein, that cases like this can't go forward, that wasn't conclusive for the judge. When you listened into that hearing that he considered that in, he was leaning towards Dufresne's side. He basically says, Prince An there's enough here for Prince Andrew to answer. And the case continues. So then we go into a discovery phase where Dufresne's team can ask for details and paperwork uh, from, uh, from Andrew's team. Things like, you know, evidence that he can't sweat, for example, could be very embarrassing and awkward that phase. But then it gets even more difficult uh, when you get to the deposition phase and he's asked to appear in court effectively for what could be, you know, often last you know, three or four hours. Uh, where he's asked about lots of detail, about salacious allegations, all of which he denies, but uh, are very difficult in terms of PR. So he has to consider his options here, but none of them are particularly good. Yeah, so what are his options now? Because we know he's tried to avoid all of this um, for so long, but the idea, as you say, of appearing um, in court is not something he'll want to do, but he, he won't, he might not have much choice around this now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's not a criminal case, it's a civil case, so he could continue ignoring it. It's happening in a different country, and then it would end up as a default judgment. He'd probably be found guilty in his absence, and he could be forced to pay damages to Dufresne, which could be quite substantial, 
or he could engage with the process and allow it to go to trial, which would be later on in the year. Uh, that would stretch out the PR crisis for him, also for the monarchy, because it all reflects on the monarchy. Uh, this year is meant to be about the Queen's Jubilee, celebrating 70 years on the throne. This will distract from that, so it's very difficult. He does have to consider that as a senior royal. The other option, Claire, is that he settles out of court. And I think of the three options, that's you know, not ideal, certainly not ideal, but probably the one they're leaning towards at the moment. Uh, but Giuffre knows she can get a huge settlement. How is he going to pay for that? Will the Queen have to put money into that? Will that link her to this? And also it does imply, doesn't it, if he takes an out-of-court settlement, that there is an acceptance of some wrongdoing there. So as I say, all these three options, the ones open to him, he could potentially appeal, but that's a very slim uh, opportunity there, I'm told by legal experts. None of these options are any good for him. It's a, it's a real crisis. And no surprise really, but silence from the royal family on all of this. Yeah, so they issued a brief statement today saying not commenting on what is an ongoing legal matter. You know, it's a monarchy. It can't be seen to get, be getting involved in a judicial process. They just have to uh, let it ride out. Uh, but, um, you know, at the same time, we're getting press releases about, as I say, the upcoming Jubilee. Uh, the Countess of Wessex was on a tour recently. They're trying to uh, continue the focus on the royal family's work. But this is headline news all around the world. And that's why it's such a difficult situation. Uh, when we talk about settling out of court and the chances of that, uh, just listen to the statement we got from Frey's team today. Uh, today's decision by Judge Kaplan denying Prince Andrew's effort to dismiss Virginia Frey's case against him is another important step in Virginia's heroic and determined pursuit of justice as a survivor of sex trafficking. That doesn't sound like someone that wants to settle out of court. That sounds like someone that wants this to go to court and so she can have her day in court and give her story, but also on behalf of other sex trafficking victims as she sees it. So I don't know if settlement is an option as far as her team's concerned, but you know, we always have to wait and see in these situations. Okay, CNN's Max Boster, thank you for joining us tonight on that. Now, coming up after the break, co-founder of The Useless Project, Taz Kelleher, will be here to show us how to lead a more sustainable life. So stay with us. Now, with more and more people trying to lead a sustainable life, how easy is it to be a minimalist in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, co-founder of The Useless Project, Taz Kelleher, and director of Friends of the Earth, Oisín Coughlin, join me now. Uh, it's pretty timely because it's after Christmas. We think about what we have in our lives and the amount of, like, I certainly know even, you know, packaging, uh, kids' toys, uh, there's a lot of indulgence around this time of year and then there's the post-Christmas looking at, looking at the mess and how you can sort through everything. Is that what sustainable living is about? Getting rid of the clutter, Taz? I think that sustainable living has loads of different kind of pronged approaches. I think that there is huge pressure put on people to live a more sustainable life when there are, you know, there are loads of ways that we can get involved in kind of a guilt-free way. So getting involved politically, getting involved in groups that, you know, are fighting for causes that you believe in, as well as trying to tackle your kind of 
your footprint on the planet as well. I think looking at your actions, but also look at, looking at the systemic change that you can be part of. Okay, so tell us about the, the sort of changes that you're, you're talking about. So within government. Okay, well, let's say from a very simple point of view, um, I was talking about my own, my own house, but the simple things that we can do to, to make ourselves that bit more sustainable before we look at the, the bigger picture. Yeah, so I think that making better choices personally can have a knock-on effect to getting involved at a, at, a, at a bigger level. So looking at your footprint in terms of your home, in terms of transport, in terms of clothing, in terms of food, they're kind of four, pro four areas that you can kind of look at. Like when you, when you look at transport, for example, it is the largest source of CO2 related emissions in Ireland. So even if you are living in a commuter town and you are traveling into the city every single day to work, see, can you carpool with people in your estate? That goes for schools as well. Seeing can you carpool with parents? So you are literally, cutting your, your emissions in half. And when you look at food, looking at the amount of food that you're wasting, you know, a massive percentage of food goes to waste every single year. One third of all the food that's produced in the world goes to waste. And if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. That's just the food that we and waste. That's just doing something simple like uh, shopping according to your needs instead of maybe the big, the big weekly shop that we all do buy as you need it plan out, plan better around your meals and, and that kind of thing. Is yeah, plan stuff? accordingly. Like there are so many luring de deals in supermarkets that have us buying more food than we know what to do with these three for two deals and buy one, get one free. We are filling our trolleys with food that we don't even know what to do with. But we don't sometimes remember that there's no value in wasted food at the end of the day. If you are throwing food out, there are resources that is going, that, that's going into making that food for it to be thrown out is, 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 is such is such a waste. So looking at what you were throwing out at the end of every single week, questioning whether it's right that a bag of carrots should be 45 cents, you know, asking these questions to yourself and seeing can you make choices to try to cut down on your food waste and make more sustainable choices when it comes to that food. Okay. Um Oshin, you know, Taz mentioned it there. There's little things we can do. A lot of people will say, well, there's big things that governments need to do. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I do think there are definitely things individuals can do. But I, and I know, as you said, after Christmas, it's a good time to look at our lives. But I'd also say it's, it's, it's January in the middle of winter in a global pandemic. People shouldn't feel too guilty. They shouldn't stress themselves about their own individual footprints. Because at the end of the day, what we need to do is make the, the least polluting options, the low polluting options, easy and accessible and affordable for everyone. So so, yes, we can do things in our own home, not flying more than we, more than we need to, although very few We're of us not. haven't got yeah. very far. And eating less red meat, for example, that like beef and lamb, that will significantly reduce your own footprint. But really, one of the things we say to individuals is don't just be an individual. Get involved in a group in your, in your own area. If you're worried about climate change, being part of a group helps you share that worry and also amplifies your power, whether it's doing things in your own community or whether, as Taz said, it's engaging with decision makers because we need to change our laws, not just our light bulbs, to make the, 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 the least polluting options available for everyone. Um, yeah, just, just on that, because people say, you know, get together as a group and do the little things. But, you know, there's a lot being said when people think maybe about sustainable living, they think about keep cups and, you know, reusable bags and all those sort of things. But it is, it's much uh, more than that. But does this require a whole lifestyle change, do you think, Oshin? Because even what you're talking about there, like cutting down on, on meat, and like they're, they're, re they're big things for people who like enjoy their food. They and are, but, but, but both the red meat... 
aren't and the necessarily ready to do involved, these things. Because we're going to be talking about retrofitting and the cost. They, bo they both involve spending less money uh, than, than as opposed to spending more money. So they are they are kind of the kinds of choices you can think about. But I also, but I agree with you that that uh, you know that that collective effort. Uh, is more is more effective and like for example you mentioned keep cups we're, we're going to see soon a deposit and return scheme like it's been decided after lots of campaigning by individuals and groups so our glass our, our uh, plastic bottles which have been such a, a blight on the landscape and our aluminium cans will carry a deposit and then you give them back in your supermarket into a vending machine a reverse vending machine and you get your money back and that will have a, a, a transformative effect across the country as opposed to asking individuals to just recycle well, anything, their own I ones. think you're right you've got, I mean anything that's consumer friendly and means you know a few more coins in your pocket is going to be something that people will latch on to you have a big bugbear haven't you Taz about fast fashion um, uh, you know, and, and actually in thinking about it, is your approach step back and think about what our grandparents did and how they wore clothes and how they treated their clothes and maybe, yeah, absolutely. maybe look, to, look backwards. In definitely, definitely. I think like the original sustainability kings and queens were our grandparents. You know, they were wearing clothing down to their bare threads. They were sewing back on buttons. They were mending, mending tears. You know, they were buying good quality clothing that was meant to last. By, by doing that, by engaging in that sustainable fashion movement, you are saving money. It's not, it, it, it will not cost you more. There are options when it comes to sustainable fashion, such as going secondhand, swapping clothes. All of this is free. Sometimes people think that going sustainable, quote unquote, has a massive price tag associated with it, but that necessarily doesn't have to be the case, in particular with fashion. It's going back to the way it was, and that's, that's the same for food as well. It's not about reinventing the wheel here. It's going back to you know, what we once did when the problem wasn't as large as it is today. Do you think there's a growing movement there? Because we are a very consumerist society. Um, you know, there's huge influence in, in media and social media and, you know, like changing up your wardrobe. There's a lot, like, for example, that, you know, even the, the onset of online shopping, people can just, you know, click on something one evening and they get it kind of the next day and that's it and you know and then there's packaging associated with that. There's a big, there's, there is a big change required are the trends going in the right way? Is it something that more and more young people want to do and get involved in, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think the kind of buy it off a mannequin trend that was associated with fashion, that you go into a shop and you buy an outfit off a mannequin, that's just... It's, 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 it's out of date now because you go in the next week and there's a different outfit on this mannequin. It's so hard to keep up that I think young people are becoming more interested in finding their own personal style rather than just taking these trends at face value and through that going secondhand. Like Depop, that buying and selling app for clothing is wildly popular. You know, there are flea markets throughout the country selling secondhand clothing. We've got one this Saturday. Um, but they're wildly popular again. There is an interest there and I think we sometimes say that sustainable fashion is almost like the gateway drug into sustainability for a lot of young people. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I, do, I do think the interest is there with that. Um, something, and I was just thinking about online shopping, but we've actually got, isn't there something like a, a global cardboard shortage? Um, Amazon were expressing concern that they didn't have enough boxes to send out for all the, the well, purchases that are being made. Because people have been buying products far more than services during, the, during all the lockdowns. Like, as you know, the supply chains are, 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 are messed up. But I would say one thing, uh, again, back to that issue of not feeling too guilty in that like, obviously rich countries have higher footprints than, than, than poorer countries, but across the world it is the richest section of every society that's doing the most of the polluting. So if you're rich, fly less. If you're taking lots of flights, fly less. But for everybody else, it really is about demanding the changes from our, from our, our, our political system that will make the, the less polluting options easy and accessible for all of us.
Okay, good point to finish on. Thank you both for that. We'll leave it there. My thanks to Taz and to Ushing. Um, Ushing will be staying with us after the breakout, actually, because we're looking at retrofitting Ireland and who will be availing of the huge grant support that has been promised by government. Welcome back. Now, last week, Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, said that the phenomenon of keeping up with the Joneses might encourage more householders to commit to expensive retrofits of their houses to improve their energy ratings. Well, Ushin Coughlin has stayed with us and we're joined by Fianna Fáil TD Barry Cowan, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University, Rory Hearn, and via Skype by architect Roisin Murphy. Um, but first, I just want to come to you, Barry Cowan, on tragic news emerging um, this evening from your hometown in Tullamore. Yes, it's, um, it's terrible to say the least. It's tragic, as you said. It's horrific. It's sickening it's all of those things uh, a young girl going about her business having done a day's work uh, to be taken out so tragically is it's hard to comprehend mm. and i just want to send my own condolences to the family and to the community and to everybody associated with it it's terrible to think that you can't go for a walk or a jog in your locality without something so horrific and of course, a guard investigation underway now and a man in his 40s has been detained in relation to that attack today. Well, um, let's move on now um, to uh, the idea around uh, retrofitting and what's, what is promised in terms of grants for many homes up and down the country. Um, I want to come to you first, uh, Roisin Murphy, on this matter because it's your area um, in a very big way um, around retrofitting and, and what you can do. Can you explain to our audience what exactly retrofitting is um, and how we can go about doing it? Yeah, um, retrofitting is basically kind of insulating your home and protecting um, against heat loss um, and also to provide, I suppose, a clean uh, solution to heating our homes. You know, these heat to air pumps are, are, are really the, the thing that we're all looking for, which is a completely carbon neutral form of heating. And the idea is that the house then retains whatever heat that you make. So rather than heat leaking out all over the place. So you do that by sort of um, traditionally we would see it as an attic insulation. But I suppose um, and, and they actually say more heat is lost through walls and glazing now, which is something that was new to me to find out as well. So there's all sorts of ways in which you can actually externally insulate your house. That's become very popular because it means that the houses, if they're small, traditionally we would have dry lined them. And now what we're doing is wrapping the buildings. Um, and again, you can upgrade your windows. You can go anything up to uh, triple glazing windows now, which again makes, uh, it, I suppose it's that idea that your house is warm it's, it's efficiently warm if you know what I mean and it makes um, the home is in, incredibly healthy to live in as well so there, there's all sorts of but it's really a big thing because we now are signing up to the climate action and part of the building regs which means that all new housing is conforming to this yeah. kind of what we would yeah. traditionally see as a B or A3 rating so it's, it's that sort of stuff but it's yeah, it's not just something, Roisin, that um, you might want to do. It's something more and more um, that we have to do. But it all sounds yeah. lovely, but it comes at a cost, doesn't it? All those measures that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Let's take, for example, yeah. a typical 1970s bungalow in, say, 
yeah. County Clare um, or elsewhere around the country. How much would it cost to, to retrofit that? Okay, well, that's a big question now. But I would okay. say to me, what, what the, the figures I seem to see, it is, what I seem to see is your average semi-D, the research I've done, says costs probably to upgrade it about 30 to 40,000 euro. Okay. So and you're talking, and with the grant, with the grant apparently will take it back down. But um, I think we even saw it on Bungalow Bliss, uh, was very interesting. One of the big uh, kind of to-dos was that they'd got a bungalow and stripped it right back. And I think it cost upwards of a hundred grand to make this uh, comply with modern regulations. There was nothing left of the house. Now, I, I personally speaking, um, I think one size doesn't fit all in terms of retrofit because we've a, a completely varied building stock. If you're living in a terraced house um, where you're, you'll have the, you know, the benefits of neighbours. Um, but then if you are in a bungalow, you're more exposed and they are traditionally actually very poorly built. You know, the cavity walls need to be filled, but you can bite it off in bits. Like, you know, and there's all sorts of kind of new financing schemes, not just about SEAI and all the grants, but also the credit union are doing stuff where they're supplying special green and so on. Post, I think, doing green green grants, basically. But I do also think that there's, there is something to be said, because I, I mean, this is personally how I did it, because I certainly couldn't afford uh, chunks of change going out at any point in my life, actually. I don't think I could. Uh, so we did it sort of bit by bit. So we did the windows, then we insulated the front walls. Like, there's ways of doing it. You do your attic where you don't necessarily have to do the whole thing straight off, you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you, you can do it bit by bit, I, I suppose, as yeah. you can afford it. Um, so let's talk about yeah. those government grants. Um, Barry Cowan, um, your thoughts on it? I mean, 30 to 40,000, and that would seem, you know, at the, the lower scale of things, perhaps we know the cost, building costs at the moment, we know the availability of people to do the job um, and the cost of, of materials. It could be far higher than that when it comes to it. Do you think there's enough of an incentive um, for people to do it? So what sort of money and, and well, grants had... are going to be available? You know, we, we all know climate change demands major action. Uh, we all know this government has set bold targets. It has put a, um, carbon budgets in place. It has a responsibility on each sector and each department uh, to meet its own targets. And here we're talking about heating and we're talking about retrofitting. I think in the first instance, it's incumbent on the minister to update the data available because we don't have a database of the ratings of each and every home in the country. As, we, as has been said, new homes is sorted. That will be dealt with by the new regs and so forth that are provided for. But in relation to existing homes, um, they need to carry out an assessment. Up to this, all you have is those homes that are sold have to have a BR assessment to complete the sale of a house. So that's the first thing. Thereafter, I agree with what your previous speaker. Yes, of course, it should be incremental. I don't necessarily believe or it's possible to go from a rating that might be a D or an E right up to a B2, which is what the minister would have you believe he can do and people will follow suit okay, so when the Joneses do it. So it has to be incremental. I think you can, for example, look at um, insulation yes. of an attic, of cavity walls. You can draft-proof windows and doors and all that could be 3,000. I think the, 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 the grants should be 50%. I think the credit unions who are in the community and for the community uh, can contribute towards it and can do it at a better rate than the strategic bank. We are told right. we'll do it at 3.5%, which doable? won't be till the end of the year. I definitely think it's doable okay. if it's done in an incremental fashion and you have sustainable fuels are also given to go ahead to be, play a role too. You have 
HVO, hydro, uh, treated vegetable oil, which is applicable as a sustainable fuel in the north and in the UK and in, 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 in Europe. Big changes and, and that can contribute. People. But first, I, but can I go back to the to the to the insulation? That can save thirty percent in a household's heating bill in the first instance. Can decrease carbon decarbonisation by twenty five percent. And the HBO over ten years as a replacement to kerosene can can decrease emissions okay, by further eighty five percent. At the fuels, uh, Rory, I want to bring you in here. You, you've raised concerns about, um, say, the renter and all of this. Like we're talking about different housing stock. There are people living in apartments. They're renting. Um, you know what would happen to a tenant when a landlord decides, okay now it's time for me to retrofit. Yeah, I think there's a real issue here and I think there's a real danger um, that you know, we, we know we need to do this. You know, it's, it's really important in terms of climate, but also in terms of, as Roshan talked about, health in terms of people, you know, addressing energy poverty. But there is a real danger that we will see inequality increasing between those who can afford to retrofit or those who benefit from retrofitting and those who are left behind. And if we look, for example, we have, you know, the Social Justice Ireland showed we have, you know, a million people after housing costs in poverty in this country. There's no way they can afford to retrofit. And and renters, you specifically asked about it. There's a real issue with renters. Almost a million people in this country are in the private rental sector. I looked at housing for all. You know, what does it say about this? If you read it, it says there is a roadmap, a roadmap to implement minimum BER standards for private rental dwellings will be introduced for rental properties commencing in 2025, subject to feasibility assessments. So tenants are basically left basically told that your contribution to climate change and benefiting from energy efficiency will be turn off the heat and freeze. There's nothing for tenants. And I think this is a real problem. And also the, the real danger as well, um, if landlords engage in considerable retrofitting, they then potentially could get around the rent protection mm. zone rules and evict tenants and get in higher pay paying tenants through retrofitting. There's a real potential there around that. But I do think the state is putting the cost of this on individuals. 28 billion, the state is only putting 3 billion in from exchequer funding. You know, this, I think that's, that's not feasible. Yeah, the carbon tax, of course, you have to remember, um, which is contributed by the public, but is done on the understanding that the, 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 the money raised goes back into oh, decarbonisation efforts. You still have to spend that's a, a, lot of money, a lot of money in doing it yourself. Um, as we're making the point that it's not something that everyone can actually do, Oshin. It's a big ask, isn't it, for people? Yes, it will make their homes warmer, more comfortable um, and, and better places to live, but it doesn't come easy. No, I mean, I think we, we have a shared goal here. Like everyone, everyone will be happy when we get healthier homes with, with, that are warmer and have lower fuel bills and also cut pollution. But it's how we get there fast enough to do our fair share in climate change and fairly enough that we don't leave people behind. And I completely agree with Roy that the renters have been the forgotten sector here. And it's not just everything he said. It's also that they tend to be younger and they tend to be more concerned and, and, and uh, worried about climate change and are powerless to, to, to do anything because they have a split incentive. They, they, they can't control what the landlord does. So there is, a, there is a new government plan due in the next couple of months, a national retrofitting plan, we need to see the detail about how they're going to do this. We have heard one thing that I think is good, that the, the, the focus of public investment, of taxpayers' money, is going to go towards those at risk of fuel poverty, those in low incomes, and those in public housing. That does make sense. But then the rest of us, uh, of, of, of which there's many different kinds for renters and, and other incomes, there have to be schemes, not just the money and low income, not low uh, uh, cost loans, but also the project support. Half it's about who do you trust to do this? What advice do you need? And there have been some really good pilots in places like Tipperary of, of the one-stop shop. We need that for every county in Ireland, as well as access to, to low-cost loans. Uh, 
um, Roisin, there's a lot there to consider. But do you think there is enough incentive for homeowners in terms of what the government plans on offering, in terms of the details uh, we've got to date for people to do it uh, briefly? I think. I think we have to do it for the climate. I think it is very expensive for individuals. I think also, I mean, this is a big one I'm putting out there. I'm not sure that that whole grant system really ticks the boxes for me. Like uh, there is, um, I just wonder who, like, should it not be sort of the energy suppliers that they're they're taking a risk by investing in us as well. That there's this thing, say that that for solar panels, for instance, that they be should be cheap to install, so that in fact actually we're all supplying onto the grid. If you know what I mean, there's 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 stories in France about where you can get cold called it by energy like a, companies. An equitable idea, but it has to be a state-led yeah. project, like a rural electrification was, like the yeah. the, the introduction yeah. of gas in Dublin in the 1980s. The, the whole issue about electrification of heat is something that we, we need to identify. Can yeah. we? take on that mantle because I don't believe and, we can and, at and present I, I think and that's why, the, that's why sustainable is better used for, for, for I'm afraid, I'm, for I'm afraid we're out of time we're going to have to leave it there my thanks to the panel that is it from us our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning but from all the late team here good night and do take care is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.